But let's read. We're going to read from uh, Revelation 8, verse 13, all the way to the end of chapter 9, so it's verse 21. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth, on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like the horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and the fire and the smoke and the sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Okay, that's the pick-me-up passage. Now, it's meant to be, it's meant to be quite dark, but let's, we're going to get into it, but let me start with a story. Around 1930, rangers at Yosemite National Park in Wyoming realized there was a problem. There was a lot of predators that were killing the elk. And they thought, well, there's a lot of predators. There's bears, there's coyotes, there's uh, cougars, and there's wolves. They thought, you know, if we get rid of the wolves who are doing most of the killing, we should allow the elks to recover health. So they did that. They called the wolves, and before you know it, there's zero wolves in Yosemite National Park. The result was not what they expected. So, the elk were used to being chased. So a herd of elk would stop in one spot, and they would eat something called a willow plant. It's the wolf willow plant, not the trees, but the plant. 
and that's what they love to eat. And they'd eat it. And they'd only eat the leaves because the moment they ate, for a little few days, uh, the wolves would come and chase them away, and they'd run to another spot. And they'd do the same thing. And this was just the cycle of life. They would run, some would get eaten, and so on. But with no wolves around, the elk stayed in one spot. And as a result, there was no need to move as much. So they didn't just eat the leaves of the willow plant. They ate the entire plant, roots and all. And that caused a problem. So although the elk population started to grow, it started to dwindle again because there was less food for them. And not just that, beavers. Beavers eat willow plants in the winter when there's nothing else to eat. And so they went from having a robust beaver population to having only one colony of beavers as of 1995 because there was nothing to eat. What was the decision they took? Let's reintroduce the wolves. So they went up to Jasper, Alberta. You've been up there? And they, I don't know if they stole them. I don't know how. Kidnapped? Did they buy our wolves? I don't know how it works. I'm not a ranger. But one way or the other, they procured wolves. And they reintroduced them to Yosemite. The result is that today, the elk have tripled in size. The, the, the amount of wolf willow plants is robust. They're everywhere. And there's now nine beaver colonies in just 25 years or so. Now, the reason that this is, I start this way is because the world, the earth is made up of millions of ecosystems. And the world seems to be, this is why Christians and, and theists say, it looks like there's a design. It looks like things were planned this way because it's almost like the forests and the parks, these, they understand what needs to be there. The predators are needed. And when you pull one part out of an ecosystem, you actually cause ripple effects that can upset the balance of the ecosystem. And the relevance of this to what we're talking about today is the Bible and Christianity is an ecosystem. It is made up with very difficult things to believe. And the tendency is to want to rip the ecosystem apart and get rid of the predators. Take out, Carl, don't talk about hell. Don't talk about judgment. Don't talk about election. Don't talk about these hard things. Rip the predators out, and that will be a better Christianity for you. But there's a lot of problems with this. Because when you pull something out of an ecosystem, there's problems. It goes imbalanced. I cannot remove talking about hell without removing a God of grace and of love. And I'll show that throughout the next few minutes. We can't, for instance, pull the doctrine of election out of the Bible without implementing or, or impacting the doctrine of sovereignty, creation, all these things. It's almost like the Bible and Christianity is a house of cards, and each card has a doctrine on it or an idea or a thought. And if we pull one out, we have to be very careful, lest the entire thing begin to collapse. For instance, if I pull the doctrine of the resurrection out, if you say, listen, Christ is just a nice teacher like Buddha, Muhammad, whoever else, I'm just going to take his teachings. He wasn't raised from the dead. That doesn't happen. I understand. I understand what you mean. But you're going to, you, you have no Christianity at that point. A church that denies the resurrection is not a church. It's people talking about philosophy, I presume. Bad philosophy, I might add. And so we have no option to go to the Bible like a buffet and say, I'll take the chicken balls and the rice, but not the sweet peas or whatever else. That's what we want to do. But if we do that, we have set the balance of it. And you end up with not a religion at all. You end up with just creating your own religion. And this is why sometimes people will say, hey, the, Christian, the church is a little too hard on doctrine. Don't you understand? There's a reason. Because if you don't stand for what it's saying, you have nothing to stand on. Then you're just making a religion that suits you, in which case, it's not a religion. If a god never challenges you, it's not a religion. Because you just made it up for yourself. You have a grandfather in heaven, not a father. And so, with that in mind, we look at this. If, I want, if we were to remove this idea of hell, because hell is introduced here, 
I can't escape it. I'd be a terrible pastor if I said, I'm just going to not talk about it. It's brutal. We have to talk about it. And if we remove it because it's primitive and hard to talk about, we do damage to other parts of the, of the Bible and the parts that we cherish and hold dear. So let's just look at this passage. And we're going to try to untangle a little bit of it. And we're going to see three things. We're going to learn something about hell, something about ourselves, and something about God. Okay, three things. I'll be as quick as Carl can be. First, let's summarize what we see in this fifth trumpet. So the first four trumpets happen, and they all affect the natural world. The next three impact humanity, people in the world. And here's, in a nutshell, what you're seeing. You are seeing hell invading the earth. This is literally what you're watching here. The idea being that near the end, at some point, depending on your view of the millennium and when things happen, you could even say in some cases that this started after Christ came. So in other words, for 2,000 years, we've been seeing the influence of hell. And I think we can make a pretty good case for that when you see what we're going to see in a minute. But one way or the other, there's a degree of hell is permitted to come up and to influence the world, but it's always controlled. Notice that this person here is given a key. He is given authority, meaning... God's the one holding it. He allows this to happen. We have to wrestle with the God that allows evil to happen. Okay? We've done that before. But let's see what's happening. It starts with this star falling from the sky, hits the earth. This is all the imagery. I'll explain what I think we're getting at. The star hits the, hits the earth, and this star is a person. He is given a key to the bottomless pit, which is hell, as we're going to see. He then opens it up. Smoke comes up. Remember last week, the smoke of the prayers of the people rose up? The smoke of heaven is sweet. The smoke of hell creates torment. So it's not by accident, the imagery is there. After this happens, the creatures that come out, see them as symbolic, please. Don't expect to see locusts with women's hair flying around. Symbolism. They come out, and they're allowed to torment for five months. And they only can torment, however, some people. The sealed, not the sealed, not the Christians, in other words, not the believers, but the others. Now, that's the imagery. That's, That's what we see. What the heck does it mean? Okay. First, this is Satan. Okay, first, symbolically, the star coming down is clearly meant to be Satan. We see this in other parts of the Bible when Isaiah 14, 12, for instance, says, how far you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. So it's clear that the imagery here is Satan is being, has been cast. He's somewhere, he's active on earth. Okay, nothing too surprising there. Even skeptics would say, yeah, it seems like there's an evil thing in the world. Something evil is going on. So that's there. Now, he is not just the deceiver. You know, the Bible talks about him as being a deceiver, but this passage refers to him as Abaddon and Apollyon. These words mean destruction and destroyer in Hebrew and Greek, respectively. The idea being that he not only deceives, but he's destructive. Have you noticed that he can hurt only people who you would think are his allies? He can't harm the church, so what is he given? He, he harms the people who you would say are okay with him, meaning... Satan, at least the biblical notion of Satan, has no allies. People walk around saying, I am a Satanist. You're playing with religion like a cat with a ball of yarn. You don't understand at all what Scripture says about this. That's okay, though. We have a world of a buffet of religions. That's fine. So, he is, Satan has come. He's then given this key to the bottomless pit. Now, the word for bottomless pit in Greek is abyssos, uh, the abyss. Every time that word is used, nine times in the New Testament, it always refers to hell. Every time. Then he calls it a great furnace. Every time it's used, except for once when it's just the furnace, Jesus' feet in the image are 
burnished bronze from a furnace in chapter 1 of Revelation. But every other time it's used in the New Testament, it refers to hell. It specifically refers to that place where, remember when the demons show up? And, they, and Christ casts a demon out and he says, uh, the, what are you, you going to send us back to the, the furnace, the abyss? So it's clear, Satan, the imagery is that Satan is somehow active on earth and he is permitted to release something of what goes on in hell to the world to torment it, to plague it. Okay, that's the imagery. Now we get to this, the weird part. Well, if that's not weird already, here's the weirder part. These locust scorpion things. What is that? Let me start by saying, just about everybody, every scholar, doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not, will say, it's pretty clear the imagery here refers to false teaching, to lies, to heresy in the church. So people in the church uh, telling lies, and I, I, we, we know those things happen all the time. If that's the case, well, where do they get that idea? Well, look at what it does. First, if these are, are locusts, then they have a problem because they don't do like, they don't do uh, locusty things, right? They're supposed to, locusts eat green things, they eat vegetation, these don't. They're told not to do that. What they are told to do, however, is to torment. Torment, what do they mean? So what are they supposed to do? So what is it that hell is releasing? What is it that's going to impact us? And again, we're not talking about physical things. We're seeing in the mood of the world, the impact and the influence in the world. And the first thing they do is torment. Baz, uh, bazanizo is the, is the Greek word. It literally is the word that every time it's used, it refers to what the demons say, are you going to torment us before our time to Jesus? Meaning the punishment they deserve. Or it's used in Revelation to speak of what happens to people in hell, suffering. So, Heaven, or hell, opens up, and something of hell is unleashed so that we experience something like hell on earth. Something like it. I'm not saying in its fullness. I don't think that's it's, it's what's happening. But something. And then it goes even further. And this is, because it, it tells us that, that they're like scorpion stings. You know, scorpions don't kill people. When I was a kid, I assumed there were scorpions everywhere, by the way. I feel like those shows made us think scorpions were everywhere. Quicksand and scorpions. And um, <laughs> apparently there's not much of either in Canada. But if a scorpion doesn't kill, what does it do? Well, it numbs you. A, sc a scorpion will paralyze, it'll numb, depending on the strength of it and where it bites you, parts of, parts of your body. So think about this. If these are supposed to be this imagery that, that there's going to be lies, deceit coming into the world that is going to pull the wool over people's eyes, not just about Christ, but about all things, if that's the case then the work of a scorpion makes sense because they're numbing you to something true, right? So this is, seems to be what they're talking about, but what is the... Um, and listen, they'll be really good lies. You can tell by the imagery. Look at the imagery. They have a face of a woman and the hair of a woman, but a tail of a scorpion, meaning they're going to look really good, but they'll sting. So the imagery is clear, right? That this is... Hell is coming. Something is unleashed. What the timing is, listen, that's beyond my pay grade. I don't know this stuff. I could argue that we have been under this sort of influence forever as humanity. <laughs> there's lies all the time. There's always deceit and deception. But there's a specific sort of torment that is described whenever this word is used, specifically by Jesus. When Jesus himself speaks about hell, which is more than any other person in the Bible, he speaks specifically about hell as being weeping and gnashing of teeth. Everybody knows that, right? Now, weeping we can understand, pain. But the gnashing of teeth carries the idea of hopelessness and frustration. And anyone who's ever suffered with depression has probably tasted a little bit of hell. Because hopelessness is actually the only 
common thread amongst people who commit suicide. The only consistent feeling amongst everyone who commits suicide is hopelessness. And if that's the case, if this is what Jesus is saying, is that hell is in some ways a sense of hopelessness, then you begin to see it here, don't you? Whatever the lie is that they're being told, that we get told, it causes hopelessness. So much hopelessness that you can't even end your life, it says. They seek it, but they can't have it. It's not by accident that Dante, in his Inferno, describes hell with the sign over the staircase, remember? Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. It's not by accident that John Milton, when he wrote Paradise Lost, speaks about the fires of hell, but when he does it, he says, there's flames, but no light or warmth given. Meaning, there's nothing good, no hope, because fire lights the way, it, gives, it shows you a way, it's warmth. It says, you won't even get that. There's nothing, it's complete hopelessness in hell. If you've ever felt that sort of thing, and I, I really mean it, I think people with depression have had a greater taste of hell than most of the rest of us. And if that's the case, then this is what we're seeing here. At some point in human history, now this depends on your view of the millennium, as you know from my lecture, but at some point, this is going to happen, is it's going to take place. There's a case that could be made to say, boy, right now there's a lot of lies about everything that are making people feel like it's hopeless. Suicides are up, we know that. I mean, that's not a surprise with COVID and all that. Um, are we in it now? That's not my decision to make. This is what it's saying, though, that hell is hopelessness. And at some point, it's going to invade the earth in greater measure. Now, if that's something we can learn a little bit about this, what do we learn about ourselves? And here's the, this is always the hardest part because this is where we have to look in the mirror. So let me use this. The sixth trumpet shows up and people die, okay? Now, when people die, the sixth of all the trumpets, the seals, is always when the end of the earth comes. The seventh is always the peace and the culmination afterwards. The sixth is when all the stuff hits the fan. Now, as a relief to those who wanted to die, some of them will get it. But here's a very fascinating and tragic fact of what, what you read here. Nobody converts. The last lines, say, this is, basically it says there's three people on earth at this point. There's the, the sealed by God, the, the saved, the Christians, the believers, whoever he has sealed for himself. Then there is those who die. And then there's those who don't die, but as it says here, did not repent of the works of their hands and so on. So, not one person, apparently, according to this, if we take it literally, repents. Despite feeling and encountering hell to some degree and feeling hopeless, they seek other answers for their hopelessness. But not one turns to Christ and says, save me. Why? Like, what is, what's going on there? And it's not too surprising, because I, as a pastor, know a lot of people who struggle who would never think of turning to the church. Or to, not the church, to the Christ. They don't turn to Carl. <laughs> turn to Christ. I understand that, but let's, let me explain why this is, and this is the part that may challenge especially you Christians, us Christians. Remember that movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, years ago came out? It was radically popular, overly brutal, just for the record. I don't think Christ was beaten that badly physically. I think it went over the top, because in the Catholic world, you really want to hammer in the physical suffering of Christ. But either way, it's physical, it's brutal. Made millions of dollars, millions of people saw it. How many Christians came out of it, you think? I don't know the number, but I'll tell you what, it didn't transform the world. Why? Because people saw a man being beaten, but nobody saw a man being beaten for them. Right? They came away seeing the brutality of humanity. Certainly, I think if you, it doesn't matter if you're a believer or not, you watch that and you're like, oh my goodness, it's horrible. But actions without interpretation are useless. 
And that's a big statement, but let me sustain it for you for a minute. The reason they don't believe is because without speech, action is rendered ambigu ambiguous. Okay? Without speech, action is ambiguous. Let me explain with some biblical examples. When the Nile turns red with blood in Exodus, without Moses there to tell them why it was happening, what would the Egyptians have said? They may have been puzzled. They may have thought it was natural because the color of plankton and whatever else. Or they may have said, our gods, Osiris, whoever, Horus, have done this. What they never would have done is said, you know what it must be? It must be that Yahweh, the God of Israel, our slaves, has desired to make them a nation that will save all the earth through the Messiah, and now he's setting them free to worship him in the wilderness. That must be what it is. They never would have thought of that. They only interpreted the Nile as from Yahweh because someone told them it was from Yahweh, because the action without the explanation is useless. Let me give you another example. When Jesus starts his ministry in Luke 4 and the early parts of all the Gospels, he goes to the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61. Remember? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the captives and so on. Nobody's angry at him until he then closes it and he says, I don't even know where I am here. Sorry, my notes. There. He then says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Then people get angry. Why? Because the action of just speaking the, the, the verse was just the guy speaking the verse. But we, then he then interpreted that verse to say, that's speaking about me. That's when the Jews get angry. Because speech clarifies the action. I'll give you another example. Mary at the resurrection at the, uh, on Easter Sunday in, in John, or in Mark actually, Mark's a better example. Um, she sees an empty tomb. She doesn't know what it means, right? She's confused. She has no idea what it means. She assumes the gardener is walking around. She thinks somebody stole the body and moved it. It isn't until the angel comes and says, no, 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 there's a resurrection that happened. Then the action becomes clear. Interpretation must follow action. So the point I think we're getting at with this, the end of the earth visions all through Revelation is to, to make, drive home the point that the problem with you and I, humanity in general, is not that we lack evidence for God. Because they're seeing all sorts of things here, we don't know exactly, but we're seeing terrible things. But the actions don't convert anyone. What is required is then for someone to come and say, do you know what these actions mean? So for instance, if, if your spouse says something to you in a snarky way, but you don't realize it, you don't realize they're really being sarcastic, they're angry with you. You almost need somebody to say, hey, She's upset with you. You need somebody to interpret the action. And this is why in Romans, Paul's very clear. He says that if you're going to, to preach to somebody, you can't simply use your actions. Holding a door open for somebody is not preaching the gospel. It's not. Because holding a door open for somebody will never so cause somebody to say, you know what? That young man held the door open for me. It must be that Jesus Christ died for my sins. They'll never say it. And that's okay. Hold the door. Of course, hold the door open for people. But it requires... Speech. This is why Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so, even after preaching, however, have you noticed people don't always believe? Like, you preach the gospel, you tell people about Jesus, and some of them are like, no thanks. No thanks, that's good for you, not for me. Very modern question, response. Why? If actions don't change people's hearts, and preaching of the gospel doesn't change their hearts entire, every time. It doesn't. We know that to be a fact. Why not? The problem is John 8, 34. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The problem is this is the biblical view of humanity. It says the reason the world is a mess and you can't ever get it right, that the myth of progress, that we're getting better as a human race, isn't quite true. We may have ended, you know, there may be equal pay for people and gender rights, which is good, but have you noticed sex trafficking is on the rise? Like radically, especially here in the border town? So this myth of progress isn't true. It's just not, it's simply not true because we are sinners. And the Bible's premise is this. Not only are you a sinner, but because you're a slave to sin, you can actually do nothing but obey. Just like anybody who's a slave. All you can really do is obey. There's no option to resist. And so the only hope for you is if you somehow have somebody who frees you. With all due, I don't know, we're not American. America had a, we know the history of slavery in America. It was difficult, and we're not blaming anyone for being a slave, of course. It's difficult to rise up and break slavery unless someone who is power enough can come and break it for you, an Abraham Lincoln, and this progress. It's difficult. And that's not even speaking about spiritual sin, which is far more, more difficult to break. And so, unless somebody was to come and break it, you and I are without hope because we have free choice. I know I stirred the pot when I said, talk about election. Listen, the doctrine of election is very clear. You have freedom of will. The problem is your will is so broken, you'll never choose God, ever, unless he first chooses you. You have free choice. And this is why C.S. Lewis says that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom ever, because we have free choice. But even after seeing terrible things, experiencing terrible things, and hearing of of a possible way out, we say, no thanks. Because oftentimes for us, to surrender to God means changing things about our lives that we're like, I don't want to, thank you. Because I'm afraid, and I'm, I can speak as a guy who became a Christian late in life, later in life, not late, 24. That's late for me. Um, that's, if I, there's always that worry. If I become a, if I, if I believe this, if I surrender to it, I'm going to look like a hypocrite. If I do, I can't live the way I want. And that's difficult. So, says C.S. Lewis, hell is full of people who will simply say, I'd rather have my will done than yours. And that is the common state of man. We'll always do this. Ultimately, and I'll go back to Paradise Lost. By the way, don't go to Dante or Milton for your views of hell. Those are literature. They're meant to be, not scripture. But ultimately, the Bible will affirm something Milton writes. That the human heart, unaltered by God, will always and only cry the defiant cry that it is better to reign in hell than it is to serve in heaven. That's ultimately the cry of the human heart. That's the biblical stance. You don't have to agree with it. But that's, that's what the Bible says, one way or the other. It says we're broken, and we can't, un, we can't free ourselves. Someone must free us. Now, now we look at God. If hell, we've learned something about hell and ourselves, here's the most common objection people have about hell, and there's lots of them, there's many, is how could a loving God condemn people to an eternity of suffering? It's, impo- it's unre- irreconcilable. I understand that view. But may I push just a little and challenge that view? Um, because it sounds really good, but it actually doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Let me use an example. Let me actually make a statement first, and then I'll sustain it like a good lawyer. The statement is this. Without wrath, there is no love. Okay? If that's already jarred you, let me go. A woman named Becky Pippert is a scholar, writer, and she wrote in one of her books this, and I'll read it. It's a bit longer, but I'll read it. Think how we feel when we see someone who, who, who love ravaged, sorry, someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. 
Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Human love here offers a truer, true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And so, friends, any, you all love people. Even if you have no children, it doesn't matter. You love people. And love always is jealous for the one who they love. Always. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean it in the sense of um, you always, love will always want to preserve, bless, dote on, care for, and please the object of their love. Always. And you will understandably always burn hot. See, love, Luther said, wrath is God's love burning hot. And what he meant was when you see someone you love, being led astray, it could be by lies, it could be by pornography, could, any, pick, a, pick a problem, we have many. When that happens, your love ought to burn hot. You ought to get rage over what is dragging them away. You should be jealous for their good health and their love. You should want them. A, a father who sees their son going in by the way of drink, pornography, whatever, pick a thing, ought, he's actually no father if he doesn't rage at the sin and doesn't do everything he can within his power to separate that child from the sin, and then to, if possible, the best of our extent anyway, to punish it. We have rules. If a man does something to a woman he shouldn't, he ought to be punished. There's civil rules. And love demands an answer for sin, always. And so to say we have a God who would never punish you is to ask for a God who isn't just. You see how the dominoes start to fall. If you have a God without a hell, you do not have a God, you have no justice, because the rapist will die and he will not be judged if he's never caught. And I assure you, even if the rapist is caught and executed for his crime, he will have it easier than the woman who has to suffer with that baggage all her life, doesn't he? And then where's justice? You see, there's no justice without a hell. I know it's uncomfortable, but here's where I will start to close the pastor line. If you're a skeptic, when you look at hell, all you see is an angry and vindictive God. If you're a Christian, however, you ought to see a weeping and caring and loving God. And this is why. On the cross, the claim of the Bible is that Christ didn't just suffer Mel Gibson-style pain, physical pain. But on the cross, all of that anger, hate, burden, misery, violence, every, think of all the wrong of human race from the history of, of humanity, past, present, and future. Take that into a ball, condense it, and then pour out all of the wrath that is rightly deserved for all that sin and allow one man to feel it on the cross in that moment. This is what Christ endured. And so when you and I as Christians anyway look at hell, we ought not to see only anger towards sin, but we ought to see the extent of God's love because he didn't just create hell as a place to go for others. He went there himself for you. This is biblical preaching. This is, this is basic scripture. And so hell isn't merely a symbol of God, God's hatred for sin, but is also the measure of his love for us. And this is why Christians for 2,000 years fall in love and serve this God. Because when they see him, they see that he was not just willing to condemn sin, but to bear the sin for us. And that, if it doesn't make you gracious, kind, tolerant, tolerant in the best sense of the word, in all these things, if it doesn't make you not rage when somebody disagrees with you, Man, don't, just don't rage at people when they disagree with you. That's not our job. 
Instead, we look at the cross, and then, out of gratitude, we can love the sinner. Love them. If they never change, love them anyway. If they hate you, love them anyway, because that's what Christ did. And with, that, with this view of hell only, are you able to sing, and this is where I'll really close, the final words, not final, but it's words of this great old hymn. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And that is the God we have. And that is something of what we learn here about hell, about hell, us, and about God. Let's pray.